Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's July 2023, and this episode will be the sixth in our series of discussions with authors of the 2022 updates of the SHEA, IDSA, and APIC Compendium of Strategies to Prevent Healthcare-Associated Infections in Acute Care Hospitals. Today, we will hear about the MRSA prevention practice recommendations that were published in this month's issue of ITCHI. I'm thrilled to have five of the authors joining us to talk about the updated recommendations, and I should also note that I was also one of the authors of this paper. With me today are Dr. Anthony Harris, Professor of Medicine, Associate Hospital Epidemiologist, and Head of the Division of Genomic Epidemiology and Clinical Outcomes at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Susan Wong, Professor of Infectious Diseases at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine, and the Medical Director of Epidemiology and Infection Prevention for UCI Health in Irvine, California. Dr. Aaron Millstone, Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and the Associate Hospital Epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Julia Moody, the Assistant Vice President of Infection Prevention for HCA Healthcare in Nashville, Tennessee, and Kyle Popovich, a Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Rush Medical College in Chicago, Illinois. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. So as described before when we've discussed other 2022 compendium updates, these new recommendations update those that were issued in 2014 and include data published as of August of 2021. I want to acknowledge that while we have quite a few of the authors here today, there were others who also made substantial contributions to this multidisciplinary effort. And I want to give them a big shout out and let them know that we're very appreciative of their time, expertise, and perspectives. I also want to thank the Compendium Expert Panel, the external reviewers, and the five partnering organizations for their review, feedback, and support of the Compendium. Now, before we get into our discussion of the specific recommendations that are included in this update, I want to start with a broad overview of MRSA epidemiology to help frame the rest of the conversation. Kyle, may I ask you to talk about what we know regarding the burden of MRSA in acute care hospitals and its impact on patient outcomes? Yes. So MRSA is a significant cause of healthcare-associated infections, including bloodstream infections, device-associated infections, surgical site infections, causes a lot of morbidity and mortality in hospitals, a major cause of intensive care unit infections. And actually before the pandemic, we had made some successes. We had noticed a decrease in our hospital onset bloodstream infections due to MRSA. Now, unfortunately, during the pandemic, this rate of infection increased. So we need to do a lot of work now. One other comment I'd make is our recommendations are largely focused on methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, but as will come up briefly during the call, methicillin-susceptible Staph aureus is also a significant cause of infections in the hospital. So I think that does support the idea that MRSA remains an important healthcare-associated pathogen, and certainly a community-associated pathogen as well. But a question, as you alluded to, that's come up is whether practice recommendations that specifically focus on MRSA prevention remain relevant when infections caused by methicillin-susceptible Staph aureus and other pathogens, including multidrug-resistant gram-negative organisms, which are also common and can also lead to poor outcomes. 
So I think all of us would agree that prevention of transmission of an infection with all organisms is important in our healthcare facilities. And in fact, we actually talked about this a little bit as we were working on the update, but I'd love to hear thoughts that any of you may have about that question and comment for future guidelines. So this is Susan. I think it's a terrific direction for us to start with MRSA and begin to apply many of the things that have been in prior guidelines and the prior compendium to talk about the broader applicability, especially for human commensals like Staph aureus, where MSSA becomes important. I think that the focus on MRSA has made it valuable, though, to highlight the evidence specific to MRSA, as it will be for other MDROs, and then to make broader statements. So in the future, I hope the compendium does expand to allow the literature review to be more broadly applied. This is Aaron. I would add to that. Thanks, Susan. I would add that when we think about MDROs, a lot of the methods that we'll talk about and we address in the compendium are horizontal measures that will prevent transmission of many MDROs. But Staph aureus is still unique in that some of the measures really reduce individual patients' risk of infection. And for other MDRO pathogens, we at this point don't have as many tools to say, take someone who has an MDR gram negative in their gut and prevent their risk of infection. Whereas we know that when someone's colonized with Staph aureus, there are things we can do to reduce that individual's risk of infection, either when they're in the ICU or having surgery. So I think that for Staph aureus and MRSA, there's still unique aspects that allow us to kind of call it out for measures that may be different than other MDROs. Great. I think those are really good points. And certainly, as you point out, Susan, something that potentially can be addressed in future versions of the compendium. So as we begin our focused discussion of the updated MRSA prevention recommendations, I'll remind our listeners that in all of the compendium practice recommendation papers, preventive practices are classified as either essential practices, defined as those that should be adopted by all acute care hospitals, or additional approaches, those that can or should be considered when MRSA infection or transmission is not controlled after implementation of the essential practices. So now with that in mind, let's talk about the major changes that people will find in the 2022 update. So in the introductory paragraphs of that paper or of this paper, four major changes are described. The first major change is the addition of antimicrobial stewardship as an essential practice. And this horizontal prevention strategy had previously been classified as an unresolved issue for MRSA prevention. And while we felt that the quality of evidence for this remains rather low, there is a theoretical rationale in that some studies have associated the receipt of antibiotics without MRSA activity with increases in the intranasal burden of MRSA. And there's also some evidence of benefit with no evidence of harm. Additionally, antimicrobial stewardship programs have demonstrated benefits related to other important health outcomes, such as C. difficile infection. And so this gets back to some of those horizontal prevention practices that Aaron was mentioning earlier. Two of the other three major changes were related to the recommendations for active surveillance testing and decolonization therapy, even though both strategies remain classified as additional approaches. So we'll talk in more detail about these two strategies later, but in broad strokes, what types of changes were made in these two recommendations? This is Susan. I'm so pleased to say that we were able to really synthesize the literature in specific populations. And so you'll see quite an array of data and commentary on the value for these particular practices across a wide breadth of ICU, non-ICU, surgical, and other types of populations. And so the last major change was in the recommendation for the use of contact precautions. 
Since the paper was published, I think this recommendation has received more attention and discussion than any of the others. So Kyle, what changes were made to the contact precautions recommendation? So contact precautions remains an essential or what it was formerly called just a basic practice we would recommend. So using contact precautions for MRSA colonized or infected patients. We recognize, you know, a lot has changed over the past couple years, including the pandemic. So we now provide specific recommendations for hospitals that either have discontinued contact precautions or considering stopping contact precautions. And so really, you know, a healthcare facility can really use the guidelines for their specific needs at their hospital. And certainly the use of contact precautions for MRSA has long been the subject of study and scientific debate. And Anthony, I know you've followed this issue for a long time and are very familiar with the data. So can I ask you to get us started in a discussion of the data that are relevant to this recommendation related to contact precautions? Sure. Let me tell a small anecdote slash joke of why these compendiums are difficult to write. And it relates to Sometimes I wish I was a cardiologist writing these type of compendiums because I think when you're a cardiologist, often the essential or advanced issues, you're reviewing a series of randomized trials and that's about it. So you're reviewing 50 or 60 randomized trials done at the patient level and it's easier to synthesize the data. I think as we all know, as hospital epidemiologists and infection preventionists, synthesizing the data in infection control is much trickier You have a lot of biologic plausibility studies. You then have case controls, cohorts, quasi-experimental design, and occasionally you have some randomized trials. And even the randomized trials are sometimes more difficult to have a definitive yes-no message because they're cluster randomized trials. I think with that background, as Kyle alluded to, The compendium relative to contact precautions tries to get at not a black or white and is trying to strike this middle ground. And I think it's really important for the readers to read in table one exactly what's written after the essential practice and that it talks about if you're a facility that is not using it, here are the things that you should consider doing even though you've opted out. And then if you look in the text, It's very, very specific about trying to get at that middle ground. And I think it's really synthesizing as outlined, the authors of this compendium and all the partners that signed off on it are trying to synthesize the benefits and then the risks and coming up with some middle ground. And I think to synthesize some of the key points that we do know are There's lots of data of biologic plausibility that show that when you take care of a patient who has MRSA, if you're wearing gloves and gowns, you walk out with it on your gloves and gowns 16% of the time. And that if you have it on your gloves and gowns, you then transfer it to the next surface you touch about 50 to 60% of the time. And so although that's not a randomized trial and it's not a quasi-experimental study, I think it clearly showed to the authors that if you're not wearing gloves and gowns and you're not washing your hands, there will be transfer of MRSA from room to room. And then that level of science obviously escalates up to the issue of it most likely prevents MRSA transmission supported by randomized trials and acquisition of MRSA by patients. That's 
the benefit, obviously, of using it. It does not lead to an increase in adverse events as supported by randomized trials. But then I think the authors are very reticent and cognizant of the fact that healthcare workers are very annoyed by contact precautions. They don't want to wear contact precautions as often required by the old compendium. There are cost issues and there are environmental issues. And so I think to summarize what was tried to alleviate is that individual institutions should look at their situation, should perform risk assessment and weigh these pros and cons depending upon the situation they are in. Thanks, Anthony. I think one of the other things that the compendium does is it refers to some of the papers that have been published looking at the experiences of other institutions that have stopped routinely using contact precautions. And I think one thing that we wanted to call people's attention to in looking at their own risk assessment and whether contact precautions remain appropriate for them is to think about the conditions that were in place in those hospitals that have stopped and reported successfully doing so, and then looking at their own conditions. So many of those hospitals reported having very high rates of adherence to many of the horizontal prevention practices. They had low baseline rates of MRSA, and many of them had a fairly high proportion of single patient rooms. I think that's the other thing we always forget about contact precautions is it's gowns and gloves, and usually it gets you a single room. And in many hospitals, unless you're on contact precautions, you're going to have a roommate given some of the older infrastructures. So something else to think about is, are the conditions in my facility conducive to successfully changing or minimizing or somehow reducing the use of contact precautions? Yeah, this is Kyle. And so I agree. I think a good example is if a hospital is considering discontinuing contact precautions, but they note a very poor hand hygiene rate, or there's concern of an ongoing MRSA outbreak, that's not the correct time to start making that change. They need to work on improving those other metrics first. This is Aaron. I would add to that. I also worry that a lot of hospitals that were considering the removal of contact precautions for colonized MRSA patients, say outside of the ICU, that was at a different time. Like pre-pandemic, there were lots of gains happening. And I think infection control programs had had a lot of focus on plasma reduction and other you know, horizontal efforts to prevent organism transmission. And we know that when the pandemic came, lots of practices changed and healthcare worker attitudes changed. And we know nationally, HEI rates went up. So I think it's important for hospitals that are either doing that or considering doing that to kind of reassess where they are post-pandemic and think about what Kyle said is, are your practices the same? Is hand hygiene compliance so low or is hand hygiene compliance high? Are your HAI rates for MRSA colonization or surgical site infections or MRSA bacteremia, have those gone up? I think people need to kind of reevaluate that and reconsider because I do think that this 2023 post-pandemic period is a little different than 2019 when a lot of this discussion had started. Yeah, and this is Susan. I think it's important to remember where we started. You know, the status of the guidelines for contact precautions has been clear from HICPAC and from the 2014 Shea Compendium that it is essential for reducing the spread and ensuring containment of MRSA. And for that reason, just as David mentioned, when hospitals began the inquiry of whether or not contact precautions could be discontinued, they did so because they had a number of other things in place, not just high adherence to other practices, but they actually had a remarkably robust risk assessment. They had concerted surveillance for signals of whether or not when they stopped this, 
MRSA would increase. They had a plan for reinstituting practices if incidents or prevalence should increase or an outbreak occur. And that's what we've articulated, that if you're going to discontinue something that is considered essential, then you must have a pathway to discontinue with caution and surveillance. It doesn't mean that you can't. It just means you need to be remarkably thoughtful. And if you are not prepared to do that, then contact precautions should remain an essential practice. This is Anthony. Another thing that the guidance, the compendium outlined that I think is really important and the devil's in the details is if we look at other specialties, everyone's moving to personalized medicine and everyone's moving to the idea of doing more for certain patients and doing less when things are not effective. And I think that if you look at the details and the wording, I think was really well written by the group is it says, based on risk assessment, hospitals may choose to prioritize certain high-risk populations for which to continue contact precautions. High-risk populations identified may include the following, ICU patients, NICU patients, burn unit patients, dialysis patients, transplant patients, patients with indwelling devices, residents of long-term acute care hospitals and residents of long-term care facilities. And tying into the whole horizontal transmission of trying to do more for high-risk patients, those are the patients that not only are probably colonized with MRSA or other resistant bacteria, and those are the patients that if they acquire a resistant bacteria, go on to develop an infection at a higher rate. And I think we need to be focusing our efforts on these high-risk populations and doing more, not only in terms of contact precautions, but in terms of decolonization and other interventions, because those are our at most risk vulnerable populations. And those are the patients whose patient outcomes would be most adversely affected from an MRSA infection. Thank you for that summary of the literature and kind of the rationale and thought process that went into that recommendation. So we've now talked about two of the recommendations designated as essential practices, antimicrobial stewardship and contact precautions. The other essential practices included in the 2022 update are largely unchanged from 2014 and include things such as hand hygiene, cleaning and disinfection of medical equipment and the healthcare environment, horizontal practices that we've referred to several times already, risk assessments, communication, and education of healthcare personnel, patients, and visitors. So we won't talk about those in any more detail today, but I do encourage people to look at the document and read up on those and remind themselves what those essential practices are. One more thing I wanted to mention, this is Susan, is the findings from the VA system about what happened when they had a need to discontinue contact precautions out of the stress of the pandemic because of shortages for PPE and discontinue active surveillance because of shortages in the laboratory. Those types of reasons for being constrained and stopping in essential practice can have really untoward outcomes. And in the paper that was just published in Clinical Infectious Diseases, there's a really nice description about what happens when you discontinue those activities and showed a significantly higher rate of healthcare-associated infections due to MRSA. So again, this is a reason why these types of discontinuation processes for essential practices need to be done with great care, and mainly because you have other ways of containing that particular pathogen. Thanks, Susan. And I would add to that that sites also need to then continue to monitor 
if they do make that decision, their rates beyond that to see whether or not their rates go up. I think those decisions, as you said, need to be made carefully. And then the outcomes and associated rates after changes need to be monitored. So now let's talk about the additional approaches that can or should be considered when essential practices have not optimally controlled MRSA. And one basic question that I think people may have is how does a hospital determine if they need to implement additional approaches? And once they decide to do so, how do they decide which additional practice or additional approach they should use? So, Julia, can I ask you to weigh in on this first in terms of how do we decide when it's time to go to additional approaches? This is Julia. Thank you for inviting me. The hospital should really assess their risks, the different patient populations. I think one of the pluses of this compendium this year is that we address the surgical patient because they do have additional risks. So, looking at populations, we've identified that the populations have different risk factors. There may be opportunities or barriers to implementing some of these additional approaches, such as decolonization or active surveillance. But certainly, it is part of the package of interventions that are proven. And there's been so many published studies since the last compendium on the MRSA that we've incorporated and tried to address some of the other questions that come our way in terms of specific populations. Really that more ongoing risk assessment and assessing your individual populations or parts of the hospital that may have ongoing challenges with MRSA control. So Aaron, the first additional approach described in the paper is active surveillance testing. And first of all, what is active surveillance and how can it be helpful in MRSA prevention? Active surveillance testing includes screening asymptomatic patients with MRSA colonization. And this is usually done using NARI swab cultures. Some use PCR as well. This approach is based on the idea that MRSA infection or positive clinical cultures represents only a small fraction of those at risk for either spreading MRSA or themselves getting infected if they're colonized with MRSA. Active surveillance by itself helps to define the burden of colonization, which can be especially beneficial in the setting, for example, of an outbreak or a cluster when you really want to define the scope of the problem. However, I think that active surveillance is most effective as a prevention strategy when we couple it with another prevention measure, For example, active surveillance will identify carriers, but that's really all it does. So when we add things like contact precautions or decolonization, that can really lead to reduced MRSA burden. Active surveillance can also be used to guide pre-procedure antimicrobial prophylaxis. So does a patient need vancomycin at the time of surgery? It can also be used to clear patients from contact precautions who may not have had a positive MRSA culture in the past few years, but are being admitted to your institution. It also can be used, as Susan's demonstrated, in cases to implement a post-discharge intervention for people that may be high risk and going to a nursing home setting after. So the updated AST section in the compendium highlights how AST can be paired with other interventions to reduce MRSA risk. And I think these also emphasize, as I mentioned earlier, how MRSA prevention can impact both patients as well as populations. For example, the second recommendation in the section discusses a patient-level benefit where we couple surveillance testing with decolonization to reduce an individual's risk of infection after surgery. In the perioperative setting, AST can inform decolonization, 
as well as, as I mentioned earlier, targeted perioperative prophylaxis. Both measures are being used to protect that patient. A different example would be the fourth recommendation in the surveillance section, which illustrates more of a population-level benefit when we couple AST with contact precautions, as Anthony alluded to. The impact of surveillance with contact precautions has been repeatedly, as that VA study showed, been beneficial at reducing MRSA transmission and disease. And that is a more population-level benefit. So individual identification of patients to reduce their risk and then identification of patients to reduce a population uh, health. So I think hospitals, as Julia mentioned, should consider both of those benefits as they're doing a risk assessment to figure out when is the right time to use active surveillance. And we talk about select high-risk groups that may benefit from those interventions. For example, in our health system, we've implemented active surveillance plus both contact precautions and decolonization in our neonatal intensive care unit, where both those coupled interventions have been shown to reduce staph aureus and MRSA disease. Another recommendation in this section, the third recommendation, focuses on the reduce MRSA trial that Susan led a few years ago, I guess more than a few years ago now, <laughs> that showed that decolonization or universal decolonization is more effective than targeted screening and decolonization. So again, it's emphasizing that it's important to think about active surveillance testing not as a single intervention, but as a coupled intervention as you're developing or doing a risk assessment and developing a comprehensive risk assessment and program for your institution. So overall, I think we're emphasizing that AST should be strongly considered in that section for outbreaks to define the burden before surgery in high-risk patients, in ICU patients, and even hospital-wide as driven by your local risk assessment and burden of disease. And Aaron, I think your discussion or your mention of decolonization as a component that you couple with active surveillance testing is a nice segue into a discussion of the recommendations related to decolonization therapy. So, Susan, maybe I can ask you to kick off our discussion of this topic. And although we've alluded to it and talked about it a little bit before, can you remind us what is meant by the phrase decolonization therapy? Sure. Decolonization is the use of topical antiseptics or antibiotic agents to decrease the skin or nose bioburden here for the purpose of reducing carriage or sequelae of MRSA. And this is important because carrying MRSA on the body is the number one risk factor for later MRSA infections. The most well-studied agents for this purpose in the United States are chlorhexane gluconate antiseptic soap, or CHG, for the skin, and nasal mupirocin antibiotic, or nasal iodophore antiseptic, to clear the nose, since MRSA's preference is to live in the nose. So I'd say that one of the exciting things that we've been able to do in this particular compendium update is to update the data from the field of infection prevention. And we've been able to garner the funding and conduct of large-scale national randomized control clinical trials in this area. So this section really focuses on populations that have benefited from decolonization for the purpose of reducing MRSA. I'll mention that decolonization has a lot of uses, and there's a lot of data on its use to prevent surgical site infection, bloodstream infections, broadly other multidrug-resistant organisms. But it's important that particularly for Staph aureus, whether you're talking about MRSA here in this compendium document or Staph aureus broadly, it's really critical that data are clear 
that you can prevent the spread of MRSA from one person to the next by reducing that bioburden. But as Aaron had mentioned earlier, if you want to do something for the person who already has it, a carrier of MRSA, you must decolonize the nose. And so we highlight here a variety of populations where nasal clearance becomes increasingly important in order to reduce their sequelae of later MRSA infections. I'll let others jump in, but I'll just say that we highlight a bunch of trials that are conducted in the ICUs. That's where several trials have been done that demonstrate benefit for decolonization across a variety of healthcare-associated infections, but clearly the universal use of chlorhexidine bathing with nasal decolonization has been definitively shown to reduce staph aureus and MRSA in particular for clinical cultures in ICUs. Same thing across non-ICUs in higher-risk individuals that have devices, so not necessarily everybody, but there are a number of people who remain vulnerable to infections outside of the ICUs because of wounds, because of devices, failure to clear secretions. We emphasize the benefit in surgical patients, much like the surgical site infection guidelines demonstrate that there can be quite a bit of benefit in actually using chlorhexidine bathing and other types of things for any pathogen. But here we highlight the value in the combination of chlorhexidine bathing and again, nasal decolonization to prevent surgical site infections due to MRSA. And we also mention in all of these discussions of trials about any information that is available for overall staph aureus. So we know that MSSA and overall staph aureus have not impacted the final recommendation because this is an MRSA guidance document, but we do mention it because it's so important to our field. And finally, we talk about post-discharge, these individuals that come back to our hospitals and how do we keep them free and clear of MRSA for the window of time that they're healing, which is generally the first quarter or two after discharge. That's when we still see a higher amount of MRSA infection recidivism. And so what can we do to actually use decolonization and what have the trials told us about that high yield benefit for preventing very, very short return for MRSA disease? Maybe, Erin, you can talk about some of the other key populations that are discussed. This is Anthony. I'll jump in for a sec while Erin's talking about that or synthesizing his thoughts. I wanted to urge the reader to look at this advanced additional section in detail because I think, as Susan alluded to, a number of these decolonization regimens received moderate and high-grade recommendations because they are supported by randomized trial data. And I think a big change is that a lot of hospitals across the United States should really be considering using these decolonizing regimens for the patient populations that Susan alluded to. So although it's an additional recommendation, I think because of the burden of MRSA and the morbidity and mortality of the outcomes of someone who gets an MRSA infection, exactly as Susan and the authors of the compendium highlighted, A lot of institutions should be using decolonization for ICU patients, for surgical site, and for patients potentially upon discharge. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, I guess in terms of unique populations that we called out this year, we especially called out neonatal intensive care units, burn unit patients, and hemodialysis patients. I think it's important for all three of those populations to acknowledge that a lot of the literature 
are from quasi-experimental studies, and most of the strongest literature is actually in staph aureus prevention, not just in MRSA prevention. So that well, we focused our recommendations based on the MRSA literature, acknowledging that the recommendations may have been stronger if we were addressing all staph aureus infections. But with that said, I think we all felt like there was uh, solid evidence, especially in high-risk areas like the NICU in burn units and in hemodialysis units to consider decolonization as a strategy to reduce MRSA disease. One of the other challenges that we face, and I think this is getting back to what Julia said about doing a risk assessment, is trying to identify benchmarks for what are above average rates of MRSA infections. We talked a lot as a group about could we define those rates? And although I think we'd all like to do that, we struggle without kind of robust data nationally in each of those subgroups to be able to say what is an above average rate. So I'm not sure if others want to comment on that, but I think we all felt that in some environments, one infection may be enough to say my rate is too high. So we would kind of challenge everyone to be critical of what is really happening in those groups and ask yourself whether or not there's more that can be done. And if so, we think targeted decolonization in those settings could be a real benefit to patients. This is Susan. I'm absolutely... Go ahead, Julia. No, you follow up, Susan, then I'll follow up. I was just going to say, I think it's so critically important as we move towards zero that we are talking about prevention in a way that we've never talked about it in decades past. And if you look at the staph aureus data, it's a human commensal. It causes problems and it causes recurrent problems in people who are at risk. And I'll just highlight the JAMA 2020 article that had done a worldwide surveillance of ICU patients and the fraction of infections in that setting that were due to staph aureus. And in the United States, that's 23%. It's hard to say that staph aureus is not an important pathogen that needs to be addressed. And some of these values that we're talking about are reducing levels of three per thousand days. And yet you can drop that substantially with these particular activities. This is Julia. One comment to add about the specialty populations is that this is an incredibly valuable document for those acute care hospitals and infection preventionists who are experiencing service line expansions. A good example is moving from a NICU level two to a NICU level three. That's a new area. And another example is if your acute care hospital is now starting to offer burn and chronic wound care. So these are all important populations we've called out that are at high risk. And the nuggets are in here to be able to guide epidemiologists and infection preventionists and the service line leaders into what is the best practice to prevent MRSA and staph aureus infections. Also in the appendix, I'd like to encourage the readers to peruse through the appendix because there's a lot of good information. We moved into that area that will help inform and help with making some of those decisions. Actually, Julia, having you speak up just reminds me to give a word of thanks to your institution because many people look at the trials that are done and they say, well, that's done in an academic setting. And those types of settings are really specialty care. And does that really apply to the rest of the United States? And I want to say that many of the trials that we highlight in this compendium have been done in the array of community hospitals across your institution in HCA healthcare, but of course in other areas as well. And it's critical to really have the evidence garnered to show findings that are more reflective of the care delivered across the United States. So I'm really pleased to be able to highlight that, that it's only with our 
joint efforts across academic and community facilities to do these types of trials that we can really move the needle. And I'll just echo Julia's comment about referring people to the appendix and the implementation section because starting an active surveillance testing program or a decolonization program isn't simple. You know, there's a lot of details to be thought through. And those sections really give a lot of good suggestions and provide a lot of references to other resources that people can use as they implement those programs. I'll also mention that there are two other additional approaches described in the MRSA prevention practice recommendations. We don't have time to talk about them today, but one of those is universal use of gowns and gloves in adult ICU patients. And the other is screening healthcare personnel for MRSA colonization or infection when they're epidemiologically linked to a cluster of MRSA infections. And so I encourage people to read about those in the guideline, even though we aren't going to be able to talk about them today. But as we think about our MRSA prevention programs, I do think it's important to remember, and I think several people have alluded to this today, that these prevention activities don't exist in a vacuum, but rather they're a part of our larger infection prevention programs and our overall hospital safety culture and initiatives. And the paper includes a description of some of the major infrastructure requirements that are really necessary for a successful program. And Julia, could you take just a couple of minutes and walk us through what some of those critical infrastructure needs are? Yes, the infrastructure really is to find out in terms of how, what do you have for tools and for compliance checks to make sure that all of your practices and your policies are being handled and meeting high compliance. So that's really important. We've got implementation science and other types of proven quality interventions and how to sustain these programs once you get them going. But that's really the secret recipe in terms of keeping high compliance, having information available so that you can make some corrections and sustain that high compliance with your interventions, no matter which pieces and parts that you have implemented in terms of these prevention strategies. So as in other compendium documents, the MRSA recommendations include a description of process and outcome measures that can be used to assess the success of your prevention activities and the degree to which those activities have been implemented into practice. I encourage everyone listening to take a look at those recommendations as you think about how to best assess your MRSA prevention program. So I want to thank everybody that's joined me today for a great discussion and overview of the MRSA compendium document. And this is the point in the podcast when we ask each participant to give listeners an action item that they can take back to their facility and put into practice now to either assess their current needs and opportunities or ideally to begin to make some immediate changes to improve care and make it safer. So what tip or advice would each of you give to someone who is looking to the compendium for help with improving their facility's MRSA prevention program? Aaron, I'm going to start with you. Thanks, David, and thanks for pulling this together. I guess more than advice, I would give a challenge. I think that when it comes to MRSA, we can do better. I think that people need to, as we've mentioned throughout, think more broadly than just MRSA and think about Staph aureus. There are lots of strategies in the compendium that impact not just MRSA, but will also have secondary impacts on MSSA, such as decolonization. So I think that people need to challenge themselves to look at their data. I think there's a lot of data that we see and a lot we don't see. 
especially when it comes to staff aureus. I think people really need to follow up on that risk assessment, identify what their rates are, and then challenge themselves to this year, try one thing, try one of these interventions in one pyrus population and see if you can move the needle, build some experience with your institution, and then broaden it from there. Anthony, I'll do an alphabetical order. You're next. I wanted to um, first thank infection preventionists and hospital epidemiologists for all they do to improve patient outcomes and all they did during the pandemic. And I think as the MRSA compendium shows and the other compendium show, we're really important. And the key take-home message I would say that's a little bit broader is I would urge everyone to advocate more for themselves, to go to their C-suite and say, here's a lot of evidence that suggests we should be doing more for our patients and we need more resources to do more. And more resources could be more IPs, could be more salary, but it could be even concrete approval for decolonization costs or contact precaution costs. And I think the reason these resources are really critical is that the more resources you have, the more you can follow the central theme of all the compendiums, which is do a risk assessment, assess what my problems are, whether it's MRSA, whether it's surgical site infection, whether it's C. diff, and allocate those resources in a logical and cost-effective way that improves the most patient outcomes at my facility. And I think the key to making that happen is to get more resources. Julia. My tip is to make sure you've got your practices, your interventions hardwired. There always seems to be a little bit of drift. And whenever you have a problem, you've got to go back and make sure that you've got that sustained high compliance and also to focus on surgical site infections. One of the measures that's not CMS reportable may be reportable in some states. So it's sort of been lost in terms of opportunities. So we've got a lot of different specialty populations we've called out in this particular document because they are also at risk. Kyle. So I agree with all the amazing comments people have made. I think leadership engagement is very important as Anthony discussed. I guess I also have a positive message. We have data that shows that our interventions can work and reduce infections. So we know the tools that are needed needs to be implemented and there needs to be compliance. And I mean, hand hygiene compliance, it doesn't need to be complicated. Just reinforcement of some of these basic measures can be very important. So we've done this, we can do this and continue to lower rates even more. Susan? I'd say that, you know, CDC has shown that we've really lost ground on our containment of MRSA as a country. It's risen quarter on quarter since the pandemic began, and our infection prevention and control programs are vitally important because success is local. You know, you know your hospital the best. You know which of this arsenal of evidence-based interventions that they are most willing to engage in and adopt and drive to high adherence. We know that as humans, we need to have multiple things, multiple things in place because we have failure rates. And so I think the thing that's most important is that you have to have multiple containment strategies in place. The best ones affect multiple things and help multiple HAIs come down. And so if you are thinking about this list and go through and find the ones, the several 
that work the best for you and make sure you drive those adherence practices to the highest that you can. And that way you'll really have success in, in reducing MRSA and other HAIs. Thank you all. And as the host of the podcast, I normally just get to put everybody else on the hot seat. But since I was also an author, I feel obligated to contribute to this part of the podcast as well. So I think what I would say, and I think it really ties some of the previous comments together a little bit, is just acknowledging that making change is hard and that there are a lot of sections of the compendium that I think can be really helpful for people who are trying to implement a new practice or enhance compliance with an existing practice. So go to the implementation section, go to the very back of the paper and read the appendix, which I suspect a lot of people don't even notice, but it's there. And there really are a lot of good resources and recommendations and tips for people that are implementing, say, a decolonization program or an active surveillance testing program. So again, one more time, I want to thank all of you for joining me today and also for the time and effort that you put into updating the MRSA recommendations. As always, there's more in the paper than we had time to discuss, so I strongly encourage everyone listening to read the full document for themselves. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of Itchy. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast. 